0: After two bad nights and basically three bad days, I found myself in hospital. My husband realised I was very unwell and I thought I was going to be seeing a cardiologist because I thought I was having a heart attack. And he sat me down and he said, no, he said, this is classic signs of a sort of anxiety driven, major depressive
1: episode. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with SHOUT, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 text support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm speaking to Rachel Kelly a mental health campaigner and writer who in her early 30s was diagnosed with severe depression and suffered from two major depressive episodes. These two episodes have become the defining events of her life. Since then, she's written about the condition and her recovery in books that have been read by tens of thousands of people. Her memoir about her experience of life-threatening depression, Black Rainbow, How Words Healed Me, My Journey Through Depression, was a Sunday Times bestseller in 2014. And has resonated ever since rachel is also a huge advocate for food being a part of our mental health toolkit and co-authored a book called the happy kitchen good mood food which is full of recipes that helped her to feel more energized less anxious and more balanced since recovering from depression rachel speaks publicly about her experience to help educate others and to break down the stigma around mental health She also shares evidence-based strategies on how to stay calm which is incredibly important in today's upside down world. I hope this conversation will help you all to see how small lifestyle changes can have a huge impact. So Rachel you've written four books now and uh, you're kind of a highly acclaimed journalist. I'd love you to just tell our audience a bit about you and your how you got into what you're doing and your two depressive episodes and why that ignited this interest in food as medicine.
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, sort of rewinding my story really begins in 1997, quite a long time ago. I was working in the Times uh, newsroom at the time. It was an exciting job, but it's definitely quite a stressful job. And I think when you're thinking about mental health, you always want to think about the context. So, my husband also had a really stressful job. He was working in financial services and we had two small children, but I thought I was fine. And then what happened was one night I just couldn't get sleep and I had had bits of insomnia before, but this was quite different because I started having these quite alarming physical symptoms and my heart rate speeded up. I remember thinking it was a bit like, I did not even know that thing when you've got a gym shoe in the washing machine and it's kind of going thump, 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 a bit like that. And I remember feeling really nauseous, like I had to throw up. And I remember my mind was really racing. Um, I later learned this is sort of known as catastrophizing, catastrophic thoughts, but I didn't know that. And my thoughts went like this well, if I don't get to sleep, I, I won't be able to get to work. If I can't get to work, then I lose my job. I lose my job, I lose, lose the house, lose the children, you know, hero to zero, all over those sorts of really panicky thoughts. I also remember I had a really nasty feeling like I was falling. I remember starting to grip the bed and just holding on tight and thinking this is really, really odd and really beginning to feel pretty ill. But anyway, the night wore on and being a sort of, you know, supposedly uh-huh, high-functioning peer sort of person, very sort of pressurised, demanding, exciting, but but definitely keep going kind of world. Um, the next morning I thought, okay, you know, refasten activity to the normal timetable, breakfast at breakfast, lunch at lunchtime, dine at dinnertime. And I'll just kind of keep going. And unfortunately, the symptoms were getting worse and worse. I felt sicker and sicker, could hardly eat. I remember trying to sort of force down some miso soup because I thought, well, if I can do that, I'll be okay. And these thoughts were just getting worse and worse, just getting more and more frightening and just felt iller and iller and iller. Anyway, cut a long story short, after two bad nights and basically three bad days, I found myself in hospital. My husband realised I was very unwell. And I thought I was going to be seeing a cardiologist because I thought I was having a heart attack. And he sat me down and he said, no, he said, this is classic signs of a sort of anxiety-driven major depressive episode. And I said, no, 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 that's not my sort of thing. And he said, well, yes, yes, yes. So you'll have heard of the fear, fight or flight syndrome. And I know that's something both of us are really interested about, the physical and the mental. But it, it that had sort of triggered but become chronic, i.e. ongoing. So I'd wanted to empty my stomach to run faster, because I kind of imagined a line on the savannah. My heart was racing to pump the blood around to cope with this kind of existential threat. My mind was trying to grip what was going on, which are all perfectly good sort of short term responses to stress, but you can't keep doing them. And by this point, I was also having suicidal thoughts, because I just felt so incredibly ill. So I did go into hospital, I was given the sort of medication to calm me down. So sleeping pills, antidepressants, but not the cheery up ones, not the Prozacs of this world, and quite a lot of benzodiazepines, which actually, as you know, are addictive, but, you know, a certain amount of Valium, just a, a real cocktail of drugs over quite a time to try and sort of come down. And basically, after about six months, I was more or less functioning again, and I just went straight back to work and shut the topic down. And that would have been the end of the story. But I didn't really do anything to look after myself or change anything. And I had a second one of these episodes and it was quite similar. It was quite a few years later, two, three years later. Again, high stress, also how I chose to respond to it, which was not in a kind of way that I would choose now. And also with insomnia, these chronic symptoms, also with a lot of medication, and unfortunately that second episode i was just incredibly ill i just couldn't suddenly feeling emotional now just because even though what happened you know it's led to this really interesting life and i work with mental health charities and i write about this stuff um yeah sometimes i think it was at a quite a high cost uh yeah so i was pretty ill for a couple of years i know how ill i was because i didn't pick up one of our children from school and he was given this prize for bravery after a couple of years and um so that second major depressive episode, that ended, well, more than a decade ago now. And it was then that I really decided to acknowledge what was happening, try and work out why did I get these episodes? you know, What was behind the anxiety? What was really going on? And just try and understand the whole topic of mental health, which is sort of what I'm still really trying to figure out. Because we know quite a lot, but we're still quite in the dark actually about quite a lot of stuff. But
1: that makes it pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, Rachel, God, thank you for sharing that incredibly moving story. But, you know, obviously it's really tragic on one hand, but it's obviously led to this incredible new chapter of your life on the other hand. So it's, um, and as we know, you know, the sort of suffering that one goes through often you have to look at it as a tool for being this kind of incredibly empathetic, sensitive, kind person and obviously you wouldn't wish it upon anyone but yeah I think
0: I think you're right it's almost like I was just given this passport to this other country where there's all sorts of other kinds of people having different experiences and particularly perhaps in a world of kind of certain amount of privilege there wasn't an understanding that a privileged life didn't necessarily mean a privileged health and I didn't actually understand that myself so in quite a kind of tough way as you say it has allowed me to enter different worlds. And, that, and that's an incredible privilege. And understand other people's experiences a little bit more than I would have, I suppose. Mm,
1: yeah. And, you know, had you not had those two episodes, you, A, you wouldn't be sitting here today, but B, you obviously, you know, you wouldn't have met the people and been able to do the incredible work that you've done subsequently, which yeah. I'm sure, you know, is changing the lives of people and has touched many.
0: Well, that's very sweet of you. I, You know, one one never really knows. But I think in a very personal way, it has affected my immediate family. And I think that it's affected my role as a mother and having a little bit more of an understanding of some of the pressures because as you know, young people are really finding life so difficult at the moment, uh, especially post-COVID. So I think in a very immediate way, I feel it has changed how I bring them up. And I think I remember with a therapist I once worked with, she said, I do like working with mothers because if I change the mother, I change the children. I'm hoping that, you know, maybe they won't have to go
1: the long way round like me. They'll take the more scenic route. <laughs> exactly. So Rachel, you said that um, mental health is equally as, po- as important as physical health and we need to treat both together. Why is this? And can you explain a bit more about what this means?
0: Yeah. So I think if we rewind to the 17th century, so there was a French scientist called Rene Descartes, and he gives us the word, the Cartesian model, and that was roughly the kind of split between mind and body. And I think it would be fair to say that up till fairly recently, that has been the approach of the sort of medical establishment: is this mental on one side and physical on the other side. But I think it is changing. I think people are now realizing that the two are utterly interconnected and, and one and the same. And I think that's that is changing as a kind of philosophical and medical and biological understanding of how we are. What hasn't changed and why this is so crucial is funding. So it turns out that, that mental health is absolutely the poor relation on every metric. So it's the poor relation, if you, if you start from the beginning, massively the poor relation in terms of research. Far, far less funding uh, into mental health research than into physical health. Then if you move across to treatment, far less funding far less availability of services on mental health than physical health in terms of other ways mental health is the poor relation Uh, there's very little representation for example of mental health specialities on the governing boards running through the nhs so people like running um, health authorities uh, commissioning services there's very little representation of people from a mental health background so i think philosophically there's been a shift but in terms of practical realities Uh, the reason this is so important and it's still room for campaigning and making a difference is is mental health is
1: absolutely still the Cinderella of the health service. I think, yeah, it's astonishing how little funding there is for it. You know, these um, other charities, for example, like Cancer Research, Mm -hmm. gets, I mean, an unbelievable amount of funding, whereas something, a charity such as Shout that's supporting us, you know, there's very Mm -hmm. little. um,
0: I I mean, I'd have to double-check the figures, but I I think the last one I heard was that there's three P... For mental health research, for every one pound that goes into cancer, yeah, it's it's something of that order. It's not far off, and charities are trying to plug the gap, which is why they're so important, especially the gap when services officially stop. So I'm an ambassador for Sane, for example, and one of the things they have is a helpline, and the and the point of the helpline is it's those windows when you're very vulnerable, when you know the GP's gone home. It's sort of from five o'clock or at the weekends, and I know Shout is also trying to fill those gaps when you're You know, you're desperate and you're on your own and and you can't get through to anybody.
1: So, Rachel, what led to you to explore about treating your health holistically? So
0: basically, so after that second episode, I I stayed on medication for quite a while. But being a kind of curious person and also not really wanting to stay on quite so much medication for quite so long, if I possibly could. Apart from anything else, and, and you'll know this, once you're involved with medication, you have to be seeing doctors and psychiatrists. And so you have very little agency and you're in a system where you feel less and less powerful or able to do anything. I remember going to see a GP, my GP, and I had started some other approaches. I'd begun on some mindfulness and I had done some cognitive behavioural therapy and, and I, to be honest I still wasn't feeling that great. Though By that stage I had moved out of that very demanding times office environment and I was working more freelance so I'd, I had made some adjustments. But the GP, as I was leaving, she said, what about happy foods? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, she said, there's this new field, nutritional psychiatry, links between mood and food. And she wrote on a prescription pad, three happy foods, dark chocolate, dark green leafy vegetables and oily fish. And I said, hey, 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 tell me more, tell me more. And I'm sure, you know, you were the same. One's really hungry for for fresh approaches. So this is about five, six years ago now. And she said, well, she said, I I can't really tell you anymore because a GP in the NHS only gets about seven hours nutritional training and I don't really feel qualified. But, you know, if it's something you're interested in, you know, you should maybe talk to a nutritionist. Anyway, I I teamed up with an amazing woman called Alice McIntosh and she's a nutritional therapist. She'd had a, a medical background. She was super smart and very caring. And I worked with her just helping me. And then we decided to try and put some of this out there so we put together our happy kitchen good mood food book just sort of sharing the research and 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 looking at the symptoms i still had so the insomnia the the anxiety the low mood the lack of energy and what were the nutritional interventions that might make a difference
1: hurt to healing has partnered with brown advisory to bring you this podcast brown advisory a global investment management firm is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So, you've got some great chapter headings. I'd love you to give the listeners a sort of a, a premise of the book.
0: Yeah. Well, interestingly, when I first started with Alice, I, I thought she'd get cracking on anxiety straight away. And she said, no, what, what we're going to do is we're going to get your energy up. And, and it is true, low mood does, for me anyway, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it left, definitely links with the low energy. And she said, no, we, we've got to get going on your energy. So the first chapter is basically about how can you use food to feel more energetic. There's a couple of ideas. One is to stop the sugar highs and lows, because what we want is a nice sort of steady pulse of steady energy. Another thing was to check your iron, because sometimes symptoms of low mood can also be your iron deficient and then we came up with recipes that might help uh, keep the sugar steady you know keeping not not no carbs but slow carbs so you know your your brown rice your slow carbs and just getting your energy going so so that was the first thing i think uh, i haven't got it in front of me actually but pretty sure the next chapter is It we did then move on to anxiety so i think it's called nice and calm and that was then looking at you know again what can we do to help with with anxiety what what foods trigger it and also what foods could help with it. So one acronym on the sort of triggering thing with the anxiety, which so I run good mood food workshops for some of the charities, and something that people seem to remember is cut the crap. So C for carbonated drinks, R for refined sugars, A for aspartame and additives, and P for processed foods and processed meats. So if we want to stay nice and calm, all of those are quite triggering to anxiety. So we want to be avoiding those and then adding in the things that keep us more calm. So back to some of the oily fish, some of the green leafy vegetables and we can talk more about why why they're
1: helpful. Yeah, go for it.
0: Okay, well, um, yeah, we could just take each of those three kind of key ingredients because obviously it's, it's a huge topic. But um, if we start with the oily fish, so that's things like your tuna, your mackerel, your herring, they're a great source of these omega-3s. So the reason we want to boost the omega-3s is that the anti inflammatory? And this is this whole new field, which is absolutely fascinating. So, since our Happy Kitchen, Good Mood Food book came out, and what was just delightful is there's just more and more work in this area. There's a key book called um, The Inflamed Brain, uh, which is by a professor at Cambridge called Professor Edward Bullmore. And what he is saying is that high levels of inflammation may underpin things like not just rheumatoid arthritis and some other medical conditions, but also anxiety, depression. So back to your omega-3s, your oily fish, they're great because the omega-3s reduces the inflammation. By the way, if you're not keen on fish, you can there are certain sort of nuts and seeds which are also high in these omega-3s. And then the dark green leafy vegetables, you know, why are they helpful? So again, this is how I try and remember it. So huge topic again, the links between mental and gut health. But in a very simple way, what we want is a good digestive health is going to help our mental health. The two are the same. If we're nice and calm in our, in our stomachs, we're nice and calm in our heads. How do we improve our digestive health to have this nice, calm stomach? So we want more of this healthy bacteria. So there's two kinds. There's the probiotics and the prebiotics. Now, the way I remember it is like the probiotics its like the O in yogurt. So that's the actual healthy bacteria. So that's things like your yogurt, your kefir, your kimchi, all those things you've heard of. And then what we want it is to combine it with the prebiotics. So that's the stuff that the bacteria feed on. And the prebiotics are things like your dark green leafy vegetables. And they have other things like they're good for your um, digestive health and they've got, you know, obviously spinach and iron, which is good for your low energy. But if we put the prebiotics, the probiotics together, that's a good way to improve gut health. I'll say one more thing on gut health. The other key thing that everybody is talking about, including people like Professor Tim Spector, if you know his work, is variety. So it turns out that most of us only eat very few things again and again and again. And what the evidence seems to suggest is that our ancestors may have eaten as much as 150 different things each week. Different plants, different seeds, different, you know, whatever was in season. Whereas we tend to eat, you know, as little as 20. So that's a lovely thing to hold on to because my own experience is that um with the groups if you tell them people not to do things notwithstanding you know cutting the crap um an easy way to stop doing things is to put other things in but it's easier to take things in than stop
1: so the variety thing is something that people seem to be able to do quite easily yeah i was once told by a therapist that we're going to approach this as the and and diet not the and or diet i like I mean, that it, we were just discussing this earlier about you know, this new concept that you can start helping your gut and like lining it, for example, before you have, say, a sugary food. So you have apple cider vinegar. And, you know, you can have things like leafy vegetables. The order in which you eat food can be really important to sort of stabilize your blood sugar levels before you maybe have a pudding. And so it is actually better instead of having a piece of cake alone is to have a handful of nuts in combination so your insulin doesn't sort of go skyrocketing high. I remember um, that so well with Alice because I thought I was, you know, I wasn't so dumb. I wasn't like eating
0: absolute rubbish, but I said, what do you have for breakfast? I said, Oh, well, I have porridge and banana. And, and she said, yeah, she said, that's fine, but that's quite a high load. Let's throw in a lot of nuts in there. Um, you know, have slightly less and, you know, maybe have your berries instead of your, your banana because your banana is very high sugar, but you know, just sort of thinking of it like that. Like, you know, what can you
1: add in? As you say, rather than, you know, what, what, what are you not going to have? And I don't know about you, but I definitely notice that certain foods really do exacerbate my anxiety, particularly sugary foods, actually. You yeah. know, that sugar spike really does. Because, you know, for anyone, you do immediately you feel on edge. Yeah. And equally, the reason why having an eating disorder is often so destructive is because you're messing around with your food. So not only do you have a mental health condition and you've got potentially a chemical imbalance in your brain going on, but you're yeah. also exacerbating that by messing with your gut. So then your whole brain gut axis is all warped and your vagus nerve can't operate properly and so the whole thing until you sort of start to look at it holistically there's no way you're going to be able to make any kind of significant changes and
0: I think that's interesting as well for this kind of mind body link and one of the things that I've been really trying to work on recently is kind of what is my gut instinct in terms of my psychological decisions and my emotions and what do I really feel about it because I think often we're so in our heads that that's our society is a certain kind of world it's always about thinking and arguing and analyzing rather than feeling and so if your gut's all messed up and you're not feeling at ease and and sort of holistically in your body that's been a huge journey for me to actually be aware of my body and be in my body and so I now it's interesting I, I actually even on a lot of decisions now I actually feel into them much more I'll actually close my eyes I'll sit and I'll really try and sort of what do I feel about that what's my real instinct what's my intuition on this and it's quite interesting because often what my mind says and what my body's saying are, are slightly different I never
1: even thought it was a topic before what my kind of whole body felt and it feels really good yeah I mean I think it's also why this intuitive eating is so gaining traction and listening to your intuition and really trying to connect with that yes but obviously while you're in a highly anxious state or a highly depressive state you can't do that, so sure, it's sure. Sort of doing the fundamentals first, and then when you get to further along the line, you hope that that will eventually be the case.
0: Yes, the, the healing body and healing mind kind of go together. But I think one of the things that is nice if you sort of rethink food in terms, it's sort of on your side, and it can contribute to your mental health recovery. I think that's another really sort of lovely, positive thing that you're sort of you're in it together, and it's not this sort of enemy. And obviously, disordered eating and it's that's a complicated in another area. But, but I think for me, a sense of a, a, a sort of weapon that I well, weapons the wrong word, but something that I could use that was on my side and that I had agency over. Because I think, especially in the groups, I noticed that there's this feeling of kind of lassitude and giving up, and there's nothing that people can do. And because some of the food changes are so dramatic, people feel so much better so quickly, even in a week. And then they get into this sort of lovely virtuous circle when they feel they can make a difference. And actually, that's such a powerful feeling. And, and you can, you really can make a difference. There's one last point actually about gut health, which we haven't talked about, but it's a really interesting new area about this intermittent eating as well, about allowing the gut microbes a chance to sort of rest and have a moment off. Um,
1: so that's something that I'm playing around with at the moment as well. So, Rachel, I'd also love to talk to you about the effectiveness of medication. And you've actually said that, like a lot of lifestyle interventions, can increase the effectiveness of medication and sometimes replace medication entirely. Sure. What type of lifestyle changes can people make? And sure. Yeah, you're also doing a poetry group that you're starting. Yeah. Aren't yeah. You?
0: Well, it's an interesting area. I mean, even since I've been involved with mental health, you know, things are shifting. So, the nice guidelines changed on. Uh, what should be the first response if somebody comes to a GP with anxiety depression. It used to be that antidepressants were thought to be, you know, you would be prescribed pretty much straight away. And now there's a view that, you know, see if some other interventions might make a difference first. So there's this uh, switch towards social prescribing, they're calling it. So it's less a sort of a pill for every ill. And, you know, that could be anything from like joining a local Zumba class or some of the idea, you know, a walking group, uh, whatever it is that, Somewhere where you're connected to others, that seems to be a key part of other interventions rather than straight into medication. There's quite a nice uh, German word called a Stammtisch. I don't know if you've heard of that. I was listening to a presentation by a psychiatrist the other day and he recommends that to his patients before medication or, or alongside medication because you make a really good point that actually, and we know that now, that, that the medication is more effective with these other uh, interventions at the same time but the idea of a Stammtisch is it's a German word and it was just a loose arrangement whereby you met up roughly with the same group of people every couple of weeks or every 10 days or so so it might be you all i don't know simple as all meeting in the pub or all meeting for a game of chess or all meeting for a walk together but the idea is that uh, you have that connectivity and people know your story so i think sometimes with mental health issues and I, and i know this myself it's really lovely when you don't have to tell your story all over again. And also a people are with you at that point where you have got to. And it's obviously how therapy works. It's that regularity that they're part of your journey. So there's something very special about the way that can work by having a regular group that meets. So I think all of these are really nice ways of looking after yourself, looking after your mental health alongside medication if, if, you know, if that's what's needed. And look, I'd never say no to medication. I've taken a lot of it myself. But also there are issues with side effects. And I put on a lot of weight and that was demoralizing for problems with libido. So look, you know, if you can come off it or reduce it, that feels like a good thing. So it is nice to to sort of combine it with other
1: things. 70% of people, I think you've said, don't actually respond to SSRIs or antidepressants at all.
0: Well, this is from psychiatrists themselves. So, roughly what they say is around 30% respond straight away. Yeah. 30% respond over time, right? Which is actually really crucial because if you're really, really desperate, that six weeks or so it might take, or it might take longer to get a response, you know, can be absolutely devastating to people because they're in such a bad way. And then 30%. Even psychiatrists, the pharmaceutical industry, 30% do not respond. So it's roughly 30, 30, 30. But look, I mean, it, it, it's a very contentious area because there are people who feel that you we're know, over-medicalizing, you know, ordinary human happiness, un- unhappiness rather, which was Freud's phrase, ordinary human unhappiness. There are studies questioning efficacy. There are certainly problems with side effects. There are certainly problems coming off them. And it took me ages to come off them myself. Having said all of that, if you're desperate, you're desperate and you know, when you're really unwell, you don't you don't have I I haven't yet found an alternative. But look, I'm hoping that, you know, if we switch this dynamic, we keep working on awareness, we keep banging the drum for mental health. You know, we will begin to move the dial and we will start to get more research into what's really going on. We still seem to know remarkably little about the brain. We still seem to know remarkably little about these chemical imbalances and what that really means. No nobody seems to think it's as simple now as serotonin levels and can't even measure serotonin levels. We're we're so in the dark. We've got no blood tests. We've got no biochemical markers or very few. I mean, if a psychiatrist was sitting here now, they might dispute some of this. But look, it's a contentious area. And look, those of us that suffer, we're just all trying to muddle through as best we can. This is the deal as it stands. You know, if we can add in other stuff, go for it. What do you turn to
1: when you're feeling low?
0: You know, with all these mental health things, it really depends where you're sitting. I mean, I feel recovered and well, and I'm able to do a lot of this stuff now. But when I was desperate and in hospital, I mean, it would be absurd to say, let's have a bit more varied diet and where are your omega threes? I mean, I just, you know, I was trying to kill myself. I wasn't. And anyway, that's where I think that if you're feeling really desperate, sometimes poetry can get through to you on a very deep level, a feeling of not being so alone a feeling that someone else has been there and yet they did something very positive is they wrote it down and there's one poem that i use all the time it's by actually a 17th century poet called george herbert it's called love and it really describes the sort of the desperate voice versus the loving voice in your head and how to find a more loving voice so it starts love bade me welcome but my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin And I've always thought that's such a brilliant description of what it's like when you're really desperate, you feel guilty of dust and sin. But any quick-eyed love is there and comes to help you find that more loving, accepting voice in your head. So that's what poetry does for me. And in fact, actually, my next book's coming out in November and it's going to be about poems that can help and just allow these feelings and be with you through the feelings. So I've called it You'll Never Walk
1: Alone. Go Rachel. And so that's being published when? um it's coming out in november with um yellow kite well rachel thank you so much for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure to have you and you're a light um Aww. you exude a very very unique energy and i think you're incredible i, yeah. I
0: feel like my teenage daughter stop
1: Aww, stopped, stop but it. i am going well, goosey go. bumpy so i'm learning to receive yeah. thank you pandora thank you rachel and um yeah will we look forward to your book thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation, so please spread the word.